tonight. Let's get into God's Word. First Kings chapter 17 gave you lots of time to find it and get there. Um, as I said a, a moment ago, uh, September 16th marks our 20th anniversary as a church, and as we look back on these 20 years of, of God's blessings on, on the church, um, I'm sure that you would agree that God has been kind to us. And for those of you who have been here any length of time, you'll know God has just been kind to us. Uh, but even if you don't have a lot of history with us, and maybe this is even your first week with us, or you've been here only a short time, you say, well, I don't know if God's been kind to you. Uh, well, I'll just tell you that uh, 20 years ago, uh, this church started at the Sunnydale Community Center um, with 38 people uh, prior to our, our official launch in September. 38 people, if you've driven by the Sunnydale Park and seen that little community center, that little broken down, tired community center, and we've gone from that to this in 20 years, even if you haven't been here for all of it, you can look around and just know God's been kind to us, amen? Uh, the Lord has been so, so kind to us. And there is a, there is a sense, uh, having said that, um, uh, so much, so much has gone our way. In 20 years, so much has gone our way. And when we think about that, there's a sense that blessing, prosperity, success, all of these things that we so naturally chase after um, and consider the pinnacle, the pinnacle of human achievement, blessing, prosperity, success, that these things may not actually be helpful to us if we are intent on having Jesus at the center of our lives. The old principle is that we can end up uh, focused more on the gift than the giver. I remember first hearing that principle reading John Piper's excellent book, A Hunger for God, that, that we can very often, when we're so blessed and we have so much, that we so focus on the gifts that we forget the giver. Or to say it another way, blessings in the Christian life can breed an insatiable desire for more blessing, but not necessarily more of God. We can easily lose our focus as a result of too much blessing, and besides all of that, we buy into something, we buy into a lie because we also know that on this side of eternity, good times don't last forever. Blessings are temporal. So we, we're coming to this series, three messages, three chapters in 1 Kings, refocusing on Jesus Christ. The whole point of what we're going to look at over these three weeks is to refocus on Jesus Christ. How do we handle it when everything's going our way? The three messages are going to look at the prophet Elijah, three episodes in his life and ministry. And to understand where we're going to go over these three weeks, in fact, it's like this is one message preached over three Sundays and over three chapters but Elijah in message two, what we'll look at next Sunday, this is in chapter 18, he's going to have this crowning achievement, this moment of incredible success when he defeats the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. This is going to stand as the pinnacle of success in Elijah's ministry. And yet in the wake of that epic win that we'll look at next week, we look at chapter 19 and message 3 the following week, he fell into a terrible depression after 
reaching this pinnacle of success. And it begs the question, because everything was going Elijah's way, how did it fall apart so quickly for him? And how can we set ourselves up to recover when it happens to us? How can we manage our successes? How can we manage our blessings? Because ultimately, we can't avoid the crash. So what we'll see in message one, in light of this pinnacle, successful moment for him, the crash that came after, but first then in chapter 17, when everything is going my way, see this in your notes, when everything is going my way, I will exalt the Lord. That's what we need to hear. When the blessings are rolling in, when I'm so successful, when I'm at the pinnacle of everything, I will exalt the Lord. Why? Well, first of all, let's get right into it. That that introduction was heavy, wasn't it? Let's get right into it. Why would I do that? Well, first of all, because He loves and disciplines. I'm going to exalt the Lord because He loves and disciplines. Let's read from the text now, 1 Kings 17. The first verse says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, a little necessary background, we're introduced to Elijah here, but with very little fanfare. This is the first mention of Elijah in the Word of God. He just shows up, no backstory. We don't even know where his hometown is. Archaeologists have kind of looked for it. They don't know where he's from. And he's delivering a message from Yahweh to King Ahab, who's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. All of this is happening in the mid-800s B.C., The northern kingdom of Israel, which is where Ahab ruled, was part of the two kingdoms, the divided kingdoms that came about after the reign of Solomon. The northern kingdom, Israel, was the uh, far more sinful, far more rebellious of the two kingdoms, Judah being the southern kingdom, uh, was um, marginally more faithful uh, to God during this period of time. The focus of the episodes that we're going to look at centers on a confrontation between Yahweh. This is key to the whole thing. A confrontation between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, who is the storm god, the Phoenician storm god. Those devoted to Baal worship believed that their god made rain. He was a storm god. He made rain. Rain is critical to an agrarian culture where you're growing crops and your whole economy is dependent on you growing crops. And Elijah declares to Ahab in this first verse that we read that there will be an extended drought brought about by Yahweh to demonstrate to the people of Israel and to Ahab in particular that Yahweh, not Baal, controls the rains that nourish the crops that bring the harvest. God can stop the rain, God can bring the rain, and Baal cannot. So this is a direct assault, right out of the gate, this is a direct assault on Baal and Baal worshipers. And God's purpose in all of this for Israel is, He's trying to say to His own people, He's trying to say to Israel, worship me, 
not this false god Baal. God loves his people, and he knows that he has to discipline them. No crops, because there's no rain. Famine, because there's a drought. He has to discipline them in order to get their attention and draw them back into a relationship with himself. Now, that's, that's kind of the explanation coming out of this very first verse. We're talking about God's love and God's discipline, and the reality is when we start to talk about discipline, no one likes to be disciplined. No one likes to be disciplined. When we were children, we did not like to be disciplined. Now that we're older and maybe we're in a job and maybe some report was brought up uh, to us and we had to go and meet with our boss and we were disciplined, uh, we were ridden up. We don't like that. Um, I, had a, I had a very close relationship with all of my vice principals through high school. I knew them all really well. I didn't like going to their office, but often I had to. We don't like to be disciplined. In fact, we think of the word discipline in, in an overtly negative way. And if you look at the full outline, you'll see here that the six things that we're saying about God, the six things that are coming out of this text about God are all, He loves and He disciplines, He protects and He provides, He hears and He heals. And of those six things, five of them are, are, are very positive and we love those things about God. But this one discipline, this one word discipline kind of stands out as overtly negative to us. But God sees discipline quite differently. And in fact, I would just say this. We see discipline quite differently when we're well past it and we can look back and we can acknowledge that our parents or our vice principal or our employer had our best interests and at heart, and it was designed to improve the kind of person that I am. And I can see that as I look back on it, but not in the moment. The preacher, the sermon that is um, the book of Hebrews, the preacher says this in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. He's actually quoting Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. He says this, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one, he, the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So, first of all, it's awesome to be disciplined by God because it means you're part of his family, that he cares enough to try to bring you to a better place. And beyond that and tied in with it is, is this, this idea that, that discipline is an expression of God's love for us. Now, parents, you already know this. You ought to know this. A permissive parent in a child-centered home, a permissive parent in a child-centered home is not loving their child as they should, but is setting themselves up setting the child up for hurt and failure down the road. You simply don't love your child if you let them do whatever they want to do. The parent who appropriately disciplines their child loves them. 
Hebrews 12, 11, he, he goes on to say this, for the, for the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. Of course it is. Again, no one likes it in the moment. It all seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's what God is always seeking to achieve in our lives as Christians. All of it, everything that happens to you is with the purpose of producing some awesome things in your life. Beautiful, righteous fruit. Every circumstance you go through, every blessing you've received, all of it is with the intention of producing beautiful, peaceful fruit in your life. And in the present context of 1 Kings 17, the drought seems, obviously, the drought seems painful rather than pleasant. But it is a loving move of God, as harsh as it seems. It's a loving move of God to discipline His people to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness, which is that they would be worshiping Him again and not Baal, to get them to stop worshiping this false god and to turn their attention back to the one true God. And that is a baseline principle that we all have to establish, that God is doing the same thing in all of our lives. He's seeking to eradicate all the idols that are in our lives that would take us away, distract us from the awesomeness of our God. I read this from Charles Spurgeon, and it fits perfectly here. I don't have it on the screen, but it is in your notes. Many of the trials that he sends us are for the purpose of weaning our hearts from created things and fixing them more closely on him who created everything. That we would focus, again, back to Piper's words, that we would focus on the gift, giver, not the gift. All right. Let's move on here. When everything is going my way, I will exalt the Lord because He loves and disciplines, and also He protects and provides. We're going to read along here, and I'll comment as we, as we go along, picking up at verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 3, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan, uh, significant because uh, the Jordan River was the extent of Israel's influence, and so he's on the other side of the Jordan. He's by the brook Gareth, and so the very first thing God is doing in, in, here is he's protecting. I mean, Elijah just delivered a very hard word to Ahab. Ahab's not going to be happy about it, so Elijah's now protected because he's out of the reach of Ahab by being east of the Jordan. Verse 4, you shall drink from the brook Again, remember the drought is on and God is going to care for His faithful prophet through this time by giving him something to drink. Uh, he has uh, water, and I've commanded uh, the ravens to feed you there. So kind of like, a, like an uber raven thing, just delivering, just meals arriving, just like we do. Um, and then verses 5 and 6, so God's going to take care of him. He's protected him. He's given him water. He's, he's providing food for him. And, the, and, and then verse 5 and 6, that's exactly what happened. Verse 7, and after a while the book, brook dried up because the drought reached there as well. There was no rain in the land. Verse 8, and God spoke again. 
It's going to move them now. Uh, verse 9, arise and go, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Um, and so um, this is now north of Israel. So he was east of Israel. Now he's going to loop up and around. He's going to go into a region called Phoenicia, which is north of Israel. He's going to be in Sidon or very close to Sidon. And, and, um, and the whole thing is that Baal, this is so important, but the origin uh, of Baal worship came from Phoenicia. So this is, this is the epicenter of Baal worship, and Elijah's going right there, having pronounced this drought, which is a direct assault on Baal worship. So he's going to go, verse 9, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you, a Phoenician woman. Verse 10, so he rose, he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Now, the drought has affected Sidon as well. And, and, and so when you're asking for water, you're asking for the thing that's most precious. He's asking for the most valuable thing to be given to him. Verse 11, and as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, um, I want more than just water, by the way. Uh, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, notice it's the Lord your God because she is not a worshiper of Yahweh. She is not Jewish. Very likely because she's from Sidon, from Phoenicia, very likely she is a Baal worshiper. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that way we may eat it and die. So that's, that's pretty dark and desperate. Uh, she's going to prepare a last meal because she knows they have no other means of providing any food for themselves. The drought has just taken such a firm hand that she's going to prepare a last meal for them and she expects both of them to be claimed as victims of this drought. Verse 13, and Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and, and bring it to me. So go ahead and prepare the meal and you know, build the fire, prepare the meal for you and your son, but make a little cake of it for me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. And, and it's an unusual request. Again, it's a, it's, it's a lot to ask from this w widow who's obviously very despondent and, and feels like she's going to she's going to die, but Elijah's not just saying this on his own authority. Verse 14, this is coming directly from the Lord, and he cites God as his authority, verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember, the God of Israel, he identifies which God this is. It's the God of Israel because he's talking to a Phoenician woman who likely worships Baal. The jar of flour, here's the promise, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. That's an awesome promise to someone who thinks they're about to die. In other words, if you will believe, and the indication of your faith is that you're going to take some of your meager resources and you're going to feed me, so this is a massive leap of faith, you're going to have to believe. This is like God saying to Abraham, leave where you live and I'm going to send you in a new place, just start walking, I'm going to make a great nation of you. This is God saying to Noah, build an ark. This is what's going to go down. This is, this is Jesus saying to Peter, step out of the boat and walk on the water. This is the, this is the leap of faith that she's being asked to take. God's going to save you. God's going to provide for you. 
And evidently she believed. Verse 15 says, she went and did, as Elijah said, exercising faith in Yahweh. And she and her household ate for many days miraculously. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. She believed and she acted on her belief. And Elijah, because of that, Elijah and the widow and the, and, the, and the son who had almost nothing had a front row seat to the protection and the provision of the Lord in the midst of this devastating and deadly drought. Now, when you have nothing, and I'm talking to some who are in the room, when you have When you have nothing or you have almost nothing and God provides, it's so much easier to see that God provided it. If you don't have enough money in your bank account to cover your bills and somehow God provides the money that you can pay that bill, you know it was the Lord. But if you've got tons of money in your bank account and God provides you more and you don't even think about your bills because they just come out automatically... I'm just saying it's so much harder to see the Lord in that. It's so much more difficult to come to faith in Him or to see our faith increased if we're already Christians, if we have so much. But our faith can increase so quickly if we have so little and God does the miraculous for us. And the bottom line on, on this is is the protection and provision of the Lord. Whether we're successful or whether we're in a time of trial and want, God is always there for us. Listen, in in the thing that really matters, God is always there for us. God always protects. God always provides in the thing that really matters. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand this a little bit more. He, He wrote to the Philippian church, Do not be anxious, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about what you have and all the blessings, and I have so much, and I have all this abundance. Don't be anxious for that. Don't be anxious if you don't have all of that, and and you feel like you're really in want. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What's really curious about these, these awesome verses, what's really curious about them is that there's, there's nothing here that says that God's going to give you the thing you're asking for. He just says, ask for it. There's nothing here that says that God's actually going to give you that thing. God, I have this specific need, or at least I think I do, and I'm asking for this to happen. God may not give you that thing, but the thing He will give you is a peace that protects you from the circumstances, no matter how relentless they might be, no matter how devastating the trial might be. In the midst of it, even if God doesn't take the trial away, God's going to give you peace. He's going to be there for you and protect you in a way that truly matters. And Paul went on 
in his closing greetings in the same letter, he's writing to the Philippians and he's thanking them for the provision they had made for his ministry. And then he says back to them, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Everything you truly need, everything you really need, God will provide. And all of this, this principle is so critical for us to remember in times of blessing and in times of want and hardship. All right, when everything is going my way, I will exalt the Lord because He loves and disciplines, He protects and provides and then notice, He hears and heals. Picking up at verse uh, 17 now. So after this, the son of the woman, uh, the mistress of the house, became ill. So the son becomes ill. They'd been rescued from the drought. They'd been rescued from the famine and so rescued from death. But now he was sick. And in fact, if we keep reading, he died. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And naturally, the woman is so confused at this moment. And and we can become so confused. I identify so closely with this widow because we can come to faith in Jesus Christ. We can see blessings begin to flow in our life. And then as soon as something hard happens to us, As soon as we face some trial or some loss, we're like, but God, I believe in you. Why aren't you blessing me now? You blessed me before. Why am I not feeling it now? God, don't you know how faithful I am? Don't you know I'm reading the Word? Don't you know I'm going to church? Don't you know I'm in a small group? Don't you know I serve you? Don't you know I gave to you? We begin to wonder why our faithfulness to God and and our obedience to His ways, why that's not yielding some blessing back, at least a blessing we feel we ought to be getting. And so we ask the classic question that Christians ask in the midst of their trial. Why, Lord? Why? Why is this happening to me? I've been so faithful to you. That's what this widow is struggling with. And and we can give her some space here because she's new in the faith and she's learning all of this, but she's so confused. How could God bless me and allow this to happen? I believed in you. I made the cake for Elijah. I abandoned Baal worship, and I became a believer in Yahweh, and you've allowed all of this to happen? And she said to Elijah, why, what have you, what have you against me, man of God? Now, I don't know why Elijah's getting blamed here, but as a pastor, I read this and I go, you know what? There's times I've been blamed for stuff that God has done. That can happen. So I feel Elijah's pain a little bit. Pastors suffer the consequence sometimes of things that God does. But how is this Elijah's fault? He's just delivering a word from God. 
What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son, to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And, and again, this is just her being a baby believer and not quite understanding the theology behind what's happened in her being saved. She goes down a road that no one intends. She shows a lack of understanding about grace, about salvation, and how God delivers. She's confused about forgiveness, as so many people are, thinking that those she saved, God is still counting her sin against her, still, still punishing her for her past. But the truth of the matter is this, Psalm 103, verse 12, one of the most beautiful verses in the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as your sins can be removed from you, that's how far they've been removed. And we should all take great comfort in knowing that if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if, if He has saved us, then those sins that we've committed will never be counted against us again. Any amens to that? Our sins will never be counted against us again. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And it is. He meant it. In fact, the, the theological term that we put on this is expiation, expiation. And it simply means this, our sins and our guilt were transferred to Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5, the prophet says it this way of, of the Messiah, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities upon him upon Him, transferred to Him, expiation of our guilt. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. You see, this woman was not being punished for her sins because Jesus had already been punished for her sins. You, if you're a Christian, you won't be punished for your sins because Jesus has already been punished for your sins. And so God, something else is going on here. It's not that. She didn't understand that. But God was very much at work and he had his purposes for her son's illness and death. And for his part, Elijah the prophet, he was a bit confused too at what was happening. Verse 19, he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and he carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. So he's got this complaint against God because, listen, he had leaned upon this widow as someone where he could go and be provided for and be protected. God was using her in this way. And now Elijah sees that all falling apart. So he's got this complaint, but he doesn't go to anybody else with the complaint. He doesn't go on social media and start complaining about a whole bunch of things. What does he do? This is a great lesson for all of us, by the way, because that's where we go to complain. I'm just going to go to Facebook. I don't post something. Facebook. Doesn't go to social media. Verse 20 says, he cried to the Lord. 
If you have a complaint about something, cry to the Lord. Tell him the whole thing. Very honest, by the way. Look what he says, O Lord my God, verse 20. Have you brought this calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by, would you be brave enough to say this to God? By killing her son? Well, that's, that's tough talk. That's tough talk to God. But you think God's big enough to handle Elijah talking to him that way? You think God's big enough to handle whatever you want to bring to him? You think God can handle your tough talk? Of course he can. He's willing to listen to you. Verse 21, then he stretched himself upon the child three times. That's weird. <laughs> now, one of the commentators said that he was like probably just trying to like transfer his life to him or, or whatever, but it just still seems weird to me. When he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, you feel his heart here, O Lord my God, let, the, let this child's life come into him again. Just bring your stuff to God. So, so much of our stuff just doesn't need to be taken to social media, doesn't, doesn't even need to be taken to other people. So much of our stuff, we just take it to God. Just take it to him and cry out to him. Verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came to him again, and he revived. And if you're taking notes here or, or right in the margin of your Bible right there, just put the word resurrection. Put the word resurrection. I mean, whenever you see someone brought back to life in, in the Bible, it's pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When sin came into this world by the choice of humanity, sin entered the world, death resulted uh, because sin came into this world, and so death is the regular occurrence. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Death is just like the order of things now. So whenever you see God reversing that, it points directly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the new life that God's providing in and through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said this, Luke 20, 38. Now, He is not, speaking of God, He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. And Jesus was talking about, in the Gospels, Jesus was talking about the Old Testament patriarchs. He was making the point that whenever we say that so-and-so is the, the God, that, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we don't say that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that God is the God of these patriarchs because those patriarchs aren't dead, physically dead but very much in the presence of God, very much resurrected because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though they were long gone physically, they were still very much alive. They were resurrected. And so anytime we see that, anytime you see someone coming back to life, that's because Jesus came back to life. Verse 23, and Elijah, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see... Your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, watch this, this is her faith just exploding into greater belief. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, in your mouth is true. Her faith was strengthened by all that God did, as difficult as it was, 
by all that God did through his servant. And so in good times and bad, the Christian ought to pray in faith, believing God for the best outcome that accomplishes his will. We should look for the best healing of all, not necessarily the physical healing that's temporal in nature, but the inner spiritual healing that we all so desperately need. In fact, when we think about that word salvation that's used throughout the Bible, and particularly the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, it's the word soteria, which means to deliver, to protect, to keep safe, but also carries the idea of healing. When we're saved by God, we're healed. And the Lord wants to hear your cry for help, for forgiveness, for healing, for grace, for peace. We exalt the Lord when we seek Him to save us from life's crushing trials, but also for the Lord to save us from all of our successes and blessings. Now, Elijah was known for being zealous for the Lord. We're just going to wrap it up with a couple of principles here. Elijah was known for being zealous for the Lord, and we can say that he, he exalted the Lord. That's what you see in his life. He just exalted the Lord. He exalted the Lord in what he said and how he lived. His confidence in God was unshakable, and that was setting him up for all that was going to come next in his life. Not that he navigated it all perfectly, but he would come back to this, to this idea of exalting the Lord. That's our starting point. And so the question is, are you exalting the Lord in the same way? Are you set up for all that's coming in your life in the days ahead? A couple of principles that I'll give you both on the screen here. A couple of key principles to note. Receive blessings. When you're getting blessings, receive blessings and enjoy times of peace and plenty as grace gifts from God and not the result of your own efforts or random good fortune. In other words, everything in my life that's good and awesome is from God. All of it. And then secondly, prepare for hardship and set the stage for times of trial and loss by deciding in advance that you will exalt the Lord no matter what. I'm going to exalt the Lord no matter what. And that's how we're going to handle the days ahead in a way that acknowledges the God who is behind it all. When everything goes your way, and when it doesn't, exalt the Lord. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. The worship team's going to come back and lead us in a closing song as well. But Father, thank you. Um, thank you again uh, for speaking to us and for uh, the way that you are so patient in working with us. Even when we're confused, even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us, even when we lash out at you, God, you're so kind and so patient and so gracious toward us. God, I pray for those right now who are in the hearing of this message, whether on the live stream or here in the room, Father, who are in a period of time of great trial. And I would pray your comfort and your care for them. I would pray that you would hear their prayers and heal them, that you would provide and protect. 
God, that you would shower them with your love. They would know it just as this widow knew it. God, I, I pray for those of us who are living with abundance. And I have to believe that that's most of us in this room. You've provided in a way that goes way beyond our basic needs. Father, that just sometimes creates such content in us. At the very least, we become distracted by it. We can believe wrong things about how we even came to have it all. God, we don't want the gifts to shroud the giver. Father, we want you to do whatever whatever pruning needs to be done in our lives to help us to see that it's all you. And God, I would pray also for those, again, those watching or those in the room who as yet have not been saved by Jesus. I pray that they would take a leap of faith today. They may be in that very position that that widow was, a Phoenician, worshiping a different God and called to believe and to act in faith, trust Jesus Christ and the promises of God. So God, I pray that there would be those today who have heard this message, who would find life in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of their sins and the promise of eternity. So God, thank you again for for hearing us, speaking to us. We pray this in Christ's name.